Hello, everyone. This is Matt Bechtel with the Book Brilliant Podcast. I really appreciate everybody joining me today. Um, we're doing a couple episodes here um, on an issue that I think is very important. And uh, we're talking about September 11th, 2001. It's been 20 years since the horrible attacks that day. And I wanted to use this platform to interview people that had perspectives who were maybe there directly um, or were directly impacted. Um, I'd actually told Brendan about this idea when I had interviewed him uh, for our episode number three. And Brendan was really intrigued by the idea. He lives in New York City, um, grew up right outside it, and he loves the city. And he had offered to come on. And hey, of course I was going to accept that. Um, and so it, in this episode, I got everything I could have wanted out of it. I was really surprised at how much Brendan knew about the Twin Towers. Um, not only do we get to talk about the Twin Towers, but we got to talk about uh, New York uh, and New York City's culture in general. And that was really interesting to me. Um, I've, I've lived in Nebraska my whole life. Um, I dearly love my state. And I, and I joke about it a few times, uh, you know, throughout the podcast and stuff and make some comparisons. But I really love uh, Nebraska and I love living here. I wouldn't want to live anywhere else um, to the point where, frankly, I haven't really been as interested in other places um, until really recently. And so learning about New York um, was just really intriguing to me. I've never been there Um you know, it's always kind of just been something I couldn't really fathom. And so, you know, listening to, to Brendan explain some things and, and invite me down there, um, it, was, it was great. Um, he sings a song as well that he wrote about the towers in this interview. Um, that song is called Hometown. And uh, it's kind of mind-blowing that I'm in this position where, you know, this guy who I kind of grew up listening to his music is, is playing a song for, for me directly for this podcast. So, again... Brendan, thank you for, for coming on. And thank you for everybody who has supported this podcast as well. Um, and another thing that Brendan did that was extremely nice about this uh, was he did this right before leaving for the Summerland tour. Um, that's pretty gracious of him um, because he had to go for the tour um, just a few days uh, after we had recorded this. Uh, so check out that tour, the Summerland tour 2021. It's got Everclear. It's got Wheatus, Hoobastank. And it's got living color. So it's quite the lineup there. And please follow Brendan on all social media at Weedus, Facebook.com slash Weedus, Twitter at Weedus, uh, Instagram at Weedus as well. So let's get started. Thank you for checking it out. All right. Well, Brendan Brown, Brendan B. Brown, thank you for joining us again. Um, we had a great talk last time. And, you know, you have a, a deep love for New York City. And uh, in September, I kind of wanted to honor and remember um, the victims and, and the heroes from uh, September 11, 2001. And, you know, you've, you've got a song uh, that you've dedicated to that and you had some stories as well. So I asked you to come back on and you very graciously said yes, even though you're getting ready for a huge uh, Summerland tour. So thank you for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me again, man. Um, yeah, I'm in the midst of of uh, getting this work done right here behind me. If you can, I don't know if you can see it, but <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's it's all happening. <laughs> That's awesome. You're a busy guy. Well, I wanted to ask, uh, you know, starting off, um, you are from. I always get them mixed up, but you're from Long Island, correct? Correct. Yeah. I always I always start to say Staten Island because of that movie, uh, <laughs> not, but not that far off. But yeah. yeah. 
So, um, you know, you, you, you went to uh, high school in New York city, correct? You had to take, no, I went to high school very close to New York city, okay. which was, uh, it was, um, a train commute, uh, a daily train commute away from my home, my childhood home. Yeah. Um, and it was kind of like, uh, you made the best, you made the most part of the trip toward the city to get there. So it was like, you know, right on the border of Queens and Nassau. Okay. The, awesome. And I know that uh, you, I've heard you say before in, in other interviews that, you know, you've always liked going into New York City as a kid and you really had a heart for it. Did you ever visit the Twin Towers as a kid? Yes. Um, uh, we were we had a, a, a wedding reception with my family, uh, uh, Windows of the World, um, yeah. when, uh, when I was about, oh, wow, I was really young. It might have been five or six years old when that happened. Um, uh, they were... Uh, they were kind of built when I was built. <laughs> they, yeah. they were as old as me, 1973. Um, I, I know quite a bit of the history of the engineering of the buildings. Uh, the Port Authority engineer, Guy Tazzoli, um, was mainly responsible for making them happen. They were an unlikely uh, offspring of this strange uh, thing called uh, the Port Authority, which is the, this bi-state agency the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey, and only a bi-state agency that could break a lot of their each state's rules to get it done would be able to do something that grand. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm sure in your research, you found out that they created 16 acres of, of Manhattan real estate in order to build them um, by, by digging out the, the bedrock. Yeah. Um, yeah. Pretty interesting. Um, just that they even existed was sort of unlikely and, and strange and cool. Um, I was from a distance growing up driving on the BQE there, um, which is the Brooklyn Queens expressway. There's a stretch where it goes past Dumbo and the, and the Brooklyn bridge where you, you just couldn't take your eyes off them. They were yeah. so fascinating. They were these giant sort of Stanley Kubrick style monolith you know, buildings and they were glittering, gleaming in the sun with these sort of tiny little elven windows. A lot of people criticized the architecture at the time that they were made, but I really liked it. I thought it was sort of like futuristic looking. Yeah. Um, the the and, opposition and, to the towers was definitely, is definitely interesting to read about the, the people that thought planes were going to be flying into them because of uh, what happened with the Empire State Building in World War II. You know, yeah, they thought that that was going to happen on accident. And then they thought it was just, I guess, too invasive because they were so, so huge. Like you had said, yeah. have you ever read about how, have you ever heard that basically how they engineered it and, and kind of like with what you said about some of the ways that they were able to do it is ultimately what weakened the structure for them to fall. Have you ever read anything on that? Yeah, I have a bit. Essentially, um, uh, in layman's engineering terms, they were like a waste paper basket turned upside down. Mm -hmm. where the uh, foundational structure or the, uh, the superstructure was on the exterior. Yeah. Which of course, when a plane hits the exterior, then it's, it's piling into the superstructure of the building. Um, That's actually a brilliant way to put that. I never thought of it like that, but that makes complete sense. Yeah. Um, and there were, it was obviously it was more complicated than that. They shared a, uh, the whole entire world trade center complex was, I think seven buildings um, and they shared uh, a basement. They called it the bathtub, which was the entirety of the superstructure underneath the World Trade Center, um, which is one of the reasons that they couldn't put the fire out because that fire, uh, when the buildings came down 
a lot like a syringe. They pumped all the jet fuel and burning whatever down into the into the superstructure basement yeah. where, where it stayed. Um, and there was also some, I can't confirm this, but recently somebody told me, geez, I think it was Will Calhoun from, from Living Color. Was, we were talking about it on my back porch that the uh, foundation was made with a sealant that they had to get from England to keep the groundwater at bay. So, um, but that sealant um, expands outward as it encounters moisture. So the differential between the, the hot fire inside um, and the uh, expanding materials on the outside pushing toward the waterline created a situation where the fire was impossible to put out. He was just mm-hmm. describing this to me. I'm sure I'm not quite getting it right, but it was very, it was fascinating. Conceptually, he made it make sense, having been told so, I think, himself by an engineer. So it was like, there was all sorts of things that were wonderful about it that were ultimately perfectly used against it, you know? Yeah, that's, that's, I'm um, a good, you, you summed it up honestly really well, because I try to explain that to people. And, and um, I think that you just put it in really simple terms. Do you remember um, when you were there as a kid, do you remember being there? And like, th- do you remember if like the building swayed a lot, wh- whatever floor you were on or any memories like oh, that? Oh yeah, man. Um, yeah, absolutely. So uh, that was kind of a great feeling. And the um, uh, kid I knew in high school, his father worked there. Uh, I think it was a 74th floor Dean Witter. Mm-hmm. And um, we went in there uh, and visited him for lunch during the summer. And, you know, it took forever to get up that elevator, but they were really fast. Really? And then, um, would your ears pop in them? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and, uh, also just the sort of the, the inertia of going up in the air so fast, so quick, the express elevators and, yeah. uh, they, um, the offices had a lot of the offices had windows access to the windows that were floor to ceiling. They criticized the window design, but it was actually kind of, I always thought that was kind of bullshit because they were wonderful. They were like, you could jump up on the radiator and stand on the radiator and put your head against the glass and look straight down to the street, like from the very tippy top. Those windows were incredible. Um, They were narrow, but it was just about wide enough where a human being could fit in the middle, you know? Yeah. Um, And I remember just doing that for hours and having to get chased out of the office up there. (laughs) (laughs) Really? <laughs> just like yeah yeah just like stare and like look and so you see people so small it's like being in a plane really, yeah you know um Did, was it like the sears tower i think in chicago like the sears tower has a a spot where you can basically it's like a gift shop the whole floor is like a visitor's glass section. yeah there's a glass floor there yeah 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 um this, was, this, to that. this wasn't quite like that because well so, so when you're when you're against the glass like that and, and it's like there's a steel beam or, or uh, on either side of you. Um, you're in the space of the building that sways. You're between two swaying sort of like yeah. fixed points. Of course, when you're inside and on the floor, there was all this sort of like all this stuff that kind of made it uh, dissipate. The, the floor was wood and the, the sheetrock on the walls and all of these other, other elements that sort of made you disconnected you from the fact that the building was swaying. But when you were up against the window, you couldn't help but to see, you could see the building just 
kind of doing this like gentle <laughs> oscillation. It was really cool. It was have really you ever cool. been to Sears Tower? No, I have not. Okay. Because I'm wondering, so did they, were they, the way that they built it, did it, did it actually minimize like the swaying? Because when I was in Chicago at the Sears Tower, I don't even know if it's called the Sears Tower now, but when I was up there, like you could 100% feel it. And it made me like feel really weird because being from a town of like 27,000 people and then all of a sudden being in Chicago where the streets are dark by how tall the buildings are was freaky to me by itself. But um, have you been in any other like big buildings like that? And was the, what's that like? I've been in the Empire State Building a bunch. Okay. I love the observation deck up there. Does it um, sway up there? Not quite. Really? Empire is a, Empire State is like a, a, a steel fortress. Okay. It's very, very stable. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I don't think uh, that thing's built like they used to build things, you know, like yeah. really. But when they got to the engineering efficiencies of the 70s and 80s, it's when they employed what they did on the World Trade Center. It was like built to flow with its environment, whereas prior to that, it was man over it, man, man versus nature, if you will. Like it was yes. this like challenge to defeat the wind, you know. And the Trade Center didn't defeat the wind. The Trade Center worked with the wind, you know. So, wow. um, yeah, it just it's very cool uh, the sears tower is a beautiful thing i love all of its sort of uh, awkward setbacks and and there's different yeah. parts of it you know yeah. it looks like it's still trying to make a decision <laughs> that building no kidding it yeah it is uh, it is kind of strange in that capacity but so do you did okay so did the did they have anything like on the, at the twin towers for like the public to go in and or p whether it's pay a ticket and go see or anything for the public or was it basically all just like law firms and banks? Oh, the, there was an, I think there was an observation deck, but, and of course windows on the world, but I never went into the observation deck cause I always knew somebody who worked in it. If I was there, I was there to visit a, a relative or a, or, a, or somebody's father or something like yeah. that. It was, you know, it's just a place you, you got the chance to go in and out of, uh, because so many people from Long Island commuted into the city to work and a lot of them worked in the towers, you know? Yeah. Um, when they came down, my parents wound up going to like 40 some odd wakes and funerals. It's just because of the sheer number of people from our area who, uh, who worked in those towers, you know? Well, could you see the twin towers on your train ride to school every day? Or is that not anywhere near uh, there? There, there is, there are one or two spots uh, on long Island where you can catch the, the arc of the city in the distance, but uh, I couldn't on my particular train ride. I couldn't see that. No. Yeah. And so when you were, you were at the twin towers, like shortly before they fell, correct? Yeah. I, um, I had, uh, well, I lived uh, in the nineties, I, in the second part of the nineties, I lived on Avenue B and 14th street, um, which is not the same neighborhood, but it's, you know, a bike ride away. Um, and I, you know, I used to just like to go ride through the courtyard and look at the sculpture and just like kind of stare up at them. And it was a, it was a meditative place for me. Yeah. Um, and I thought that they, I was like weirdly proud of them. Not because of America or, you know, our, our like experiment, but more as a New Yorker as like, isn't that interesting that they figured out how to do that? Look at this city, you know, look at, yeah. look at what's happening here. There's people solving all kinds of strange problems here. Um, and it was like a, a kind of like, well, if somebody can do that, 
was like the architectural moonshot, you know what I mean? Like of, of my yeah. own generation. Like it was something really impressive to look at. Um, yeah. It, it's bizarre to me when I, when I think about how they were really only up for th- what, 30 or 40 years. I mean, they weren't up that long. No. Uh, and it's, yeah. it's, um, that's kind of, uh, it, it's very sad, but it kind of blows my mind that it was up for such a short, short period of time. Um, do you, where were you at on uh, September 11, 2001? Uh, September 11, 2001, I was in Sony studios in, uh, London. Oh, wow. I was, I was with uh, a wonderful mixing engineer called Dave Bascom, who, okay. uh, if you look up his discography, you'll see all the wonderful stuff he's done, uh, Depeche Mode and a whole bunch of other stuff. But he was uh, busy mixing our third single, uh, which had been a really fraught process for us. Um, uh-huh. It was recorded at Abbey Road, which was really good, but there was a lot of tension with the label about the video and how it was going to all shake out. And I was... Um, I was on the phone uh, calling the cab company after our final listen and they were printing mixes. We were done. And I was calling a black cab to take me to Heathrow because I had a ticket to fly back to New York on September 11th. Mm -hmm. That was when I was supposed to land that night. And um, while I'm on the phone, uh, because they were finished with the mix, they turned on the TV just to watch like a game show or, or something. And all the coverage was being preempted uh, by uh, just a picture of the towers. And when they turned it on, I happened to be looking, just gazing up around the television area. And it was a really tight close-up of the sort of elven arched uh, window tops that they had and yeah. the smoke pouring out. And in that f- single frame of television coverage, I knew exactly what that was. I knew that that was the, tr- the Twin Towers. I knew that they were on fire. I knew it was a terrorist attack. And as soon as they zoomed out and showed the hole, I knew that they were going to come down or that the one was going to come down. And then the second one hit, the second plane hit. And that was when it was like clear in an instant that it was an attack. And we were just kind of in shock having worked on this song and being finished with it to have this sudden like, uh, you know, like herald of global upheaval, like on the television. It was really weird. It felt like Germany had invaded or something. You know, it was like, it was just like epic shift. Yeah. Do you remember, did you cry? Were you quiet? Did you yell? I mean, how did you? I, I, I said several times, I, I said it before they even knew what I was talking about. I was like, that's the twin towers. That's the twin towers. That's a terrorist attack. Oh my God. Oh my God. Um, and I, I remember I, I was standing up and I, I hung up on the cabbie and I was like, just watching the television. And I was like, that's a terrorist attack. And I went, oh, Jesus, George. I said, George Bush is going to launch a fucking nuclear weapon. I was like, that's all I kind of like. I just kind of caved in on that. Like, <laughs> yeah. this is going to be bad. You know, like it, 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 and I just I, I and, and then and then it was like after that, it was like, guess what? You're not going home for like, you know, 20 days. You're stuck. Is that how like long it, you were stuck there? Yeah, I was stuck there for a really long time. I think it was 18 days total, um, but it was supposed to be 20. And then it was like, oh, you got your flight got moved up. Um, oh. And the other thing that happened is it's not really that consequential, but it affected us profoundly at the time. We had um, tour dates that were supposed to start in mid-October. Yeah. 
that were supposed to go all the way through to Christmas. And the whole thing got uh, sort of truncated and pushed back to uh, mid-November through mid-December. So yeah. we lost half the tour from it. Um, if for no other reason, we couldn't, we weren't going to be able to ship our gear anymore. Flying gear across the Atlantic had become like instantly problematic and <laughs> just everything changed. And we were suddenly retooling the whole entire like course of our lives. Um, at the same time that we were finding out who was and who wasn't in the building because we knew people who were in it. So, you know, it's like when, when you did get back to New York, were you, wh what were you was it like, you know, just trying to live life as normal or were you doing any, I don't know if it was, whether it's volunteer stuff or meeting with friends or family who were impacted. I mean, what did you do your first day back in New York? Do you remember? Um, well, I had, I had to really scramble because at the time uh, we were still uh, a little band, even though we were starting to have some pretty serious things happen. Yeah. Um, I had all this, I had all this work to do to figure out how to, to fix this tour that had been kind of sliced in half. So it was like instantly just on the phone, stuck on the phone, doing a lot of touring stuff. And yeah. then other phone calls where it was like, Hey, you know, is Jeff, was Jeff's dad in the building with like, cause it got all the, every, anybody and everybody who worked there, who you knew from, you know, two years ago, you were looking, you know, you, you were trying to find their number and, and find out what happened. Yeah. But, but the phone lines in America were all kind of, kind of screwed up for for you don't know if you remember that but like i remember i was one i was a person who had a cell phone a nextel cell phone back then yeah because of the job that i had had uh fixing computers prior to being signed to columbia and i kept that cell phone and i, I couldn't call anybody it was like just the lines were jammed up for a few weeks and it was just ha a hassle so in terms of volunteering um they were telling at that point, when I, by the time I got back 20 days later, they were telling people not to show up to volunteer anymore because they were, there was nothing that, that uh, sadly, anybody who got out actually did get out. Anybody who was stuck inside when they came down, those people died. Yeah. And it was a, it wasn't a rescue effort. It was a recovery effort. Some people were saved, but the majority of people who were stuck in the buildings died. And they were figuring that that was something that they were kind of figuring out 20 days, 25 days after um, it happened. Um, so my, uh, as far as people, uh, I know my, my, my cousin, Phil was uh, a FDNY and he was on, on the, I think the second shift. Luckily okay. he got sent in. Uh, my friend Artie was NYPD and he was stationed at the Brooklyn bridge. Uh, had, you know, uh, making sure foot traffic was, was getting over the bridge and yeah. no car traffic was coming, you know? So it was like a very tactile um, experience for people I knew. Yeah. It's crazy to think because people were like running through the Brooklyn bridge. Correct. I mean, yeah. People ran across that. I had a, I've got a, I did an interview with a guy who's a police officer named Vic Ferrari. He's written um, a few books and he talked about how, he said he remembers all of the women's shoes that were like just down the street was just like all these women's shoes left behind because the, the women were kicking off their high heels and just, you know, sprinting barefoot yeah, um, away from it. Y your friend's dad, who, I think you said he worked on the 72nd or so floor um, Did he live. Was he working that day? Did he, he survive? Uh, fortunately, uh, he had retired. 
oh, okay. uh, a year before, so he wasn't there. Uh, and the same was true of another uh, kid I knew in high school. His father wasn't there anymore because he had retired. So it was just like by, by luck of the draw, kind of, that they weren't. Otherwise, they would have certainly been there. Um, the, uh, the, wor- the worst personalized account um, was from uh, a friend of my brother's uh, growing up family we've known since my parents were in high school um who uh was there when they were attacked and got out and uh, his account of of sort of running across the courtyard while bodies were landing nearby was is is like beyond harrowing that was that that hearing him have to uh, just hearing him incapable of of relaying that experience was pretty stunning yeah Um, i can't that's one thing you know when i study the when i study september 11th and and you read about it and and i'll i just fall in love with the towers i fall in love with the people the new yorkers and stuff and then it's tragic because you know it's going to happen and it's like you just want anytime i read a book about it it's like you just hope that at the end of the book, it's going to be, you know, history will be rewritten and everything's going to be okay. And, and, um, when I, when I think about the people who had, wh- whether they jumped or I believe some of the people who fell were just thought that maybe they could, you know, somehow, uh, you know, parkour it to another window or another floor. And then they, they slipped and fell or whatever. I mean, that to me, when I put myself in the shoes of somebody who's trying to decide, do I want to burn to death or jump off of a tower it's like it that that's um pretty mind-blowing it breaks yeah, my heart it yeah it's it's awful and you know what the, the other part that really sucks you know if they if if it was the goal to attack something powerful it was a miss because the powerful people don't show up at eight o'clock in the morning. It's the cleaning crew that shows up at eight o'clock. It's the people who open the offices, the people who do the hard, low-paid work to make those buildings run. That's who was there. You know, they didn't get anybody important, quote unquote, in the global scheme of like world trade or any of that stuff. Yeah, they got I've the working class. They, you know, they got working class people who, who had, you know. Um, probably were were you know struggling in their own lives to to feed their families and were, and were showing up on time because they needed to that's who they attacked which is just pretty obnoxious you know it's, it's just an obnoxious thing like it's not the dick cheney's of this world don't wouldn't be in that building at that yeah. hour is my point you know you brought up a good point i'd never thought about which is if the terrorists were trying to get you know, the owners of the banks or the owners of the law firm, um, they didn't, the people that were there were the secretaries and the, and the, you know, the workers, the custodians, it wasn't the powerful people. I've never thought about that before. Yeah. Yeah. They, you know, they, they attacked the poorest, um, of, of the employees of the world trade center, not, not the, not the real beneficiaries. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. And, you know, I mean, um, I don't know. There's, there's so much that could be said about it. I just, as a New Yorker, I had this sort of uh, real anger about, you know, those, ta- those buildings not being there anymore. Like, you know, like this, um, 
this murderous vandalism kind of thing, you know? Do you, do you think they should have rebuilt them? Because I saw, like I said, I'm from Nebraska, man. I, I've never even been to New York City, but I always thought they should have rebuilt them bigger and stronger. Um, and I think that that was on the table. What, what are you, do, are you happy with what's there now? Or do you wish? Not they- really. Uh, One World Trade is, um, is a, a, in my opinion, is an architectural compromise. Um, yeah. It just kind of looks like a tall, shiny building that you'd see in like, the future of like Houston, Texas, you know, like yeah. it doesn't look like, it doesn't look like New York city. It doesn't look like an innovation. It doesn't yeah. look like a breakthrough. And in that respect, I think it's like kind of really just kind of sad that we, that, you know, George Pataki was the governor of the state at that time. And, you know, he, he, I think he pushed uh, Liebskind into place, the architect. And I just don't, I don't think that they did the best that they could have. Um, yeah. I think the original combination of this sort of like, uh, like borough born, you know, or the, Guy Tizzoli might be from New Jersey originally. I'm not sure. I think he might've been from Brooklyn. I, I can't, I can't remember, but he, he's the original guy who, who made them happen. And, and it would have been far better in my opinion to, to, to build back better. Like you said, um, if for no other reason, then it's just like, you know, why would New York City ever give up its its iconic uh, front teeth? You know, like, yeah. why, why would we do that? I just don't understand why we why they felt the need to build something different. It just made me angry. You know, the, um, it's it's a silly comparison. But, you know, I think that the Twin Towers represented New York City. Well, I mean, when I think of New York City and never have been there, you know, it's only from movies or TV. And it's like, you know, bold and brash and powerful and and. And that's what the Twin Towers were. And the silly comparison is it's like with the Nebraska Cornhuskers, I don't know if you know anything about college football, but my favorite coach was always Bo Pelini. And, you know, people didn't like Bo Pelini because he was always going crazy and cussing and freaking out. And I was like, but that's the embodiment of Nebraska football, man. It's like, go to a party. You will see people lose their minds over the football game. So I was like, Bo Pelini is my favorite coach. I don't care about any of the other stuff. I thought he represented us uh, perfectly as far as how people really feel about the game. Um, yeah. You're not, you're not tuning in to watch like a cold blooded tactician, you know, you're, yeah. you're, you want to see somebody who's red hot, you know? <laughs> oh, I get mad. Like, um, and I'm not the biggest sports guy in the world, believe me, but I get mad if like, if like with Riley, coach Riley and, and I, I like Scott Frost a lot, but even him when he's too calm, when things are going well, it makes me even more mad because it's like, I want to see you, you know, get fired up, you know, then I at least know that it's being handled, I feel like. So um, that's my silly comparison, because I know that some people thought, you know, again, some people were against the Twin Towers. They thought they were too invasive, while other people thought like, hell no, this represents New York City. Well, you know? so, I yeah. And also, you know, going back to the history of the location, uh, Alexander Hamilton is a guy who you know, was uh, a person of color who came to New York and made himself new, you know, and got to the top in the first, at the first chance there was to do that. Yeah. And of course, America has, we have tons of problems. We have tons of places where we fall short on our creeds, you know. Um, But I've always felt like New York City is this place where you need to live up to the creed to survive because 
There's lots of different people and lots of different languages, and we're stacked on top of each other like, you know, like, like rats, right? Yeah. But in that chaos and in that, all of that disparate energy, we have to find a way to get along. Because if you don't find a way to get along, the city fails. And you, don't, you can't have the city fail. That's not an option. Yeah. So by and by, the successful rise of New York City over the centuries has depended on abandoning your racism, abandoning your theocratic notions of the old world, abandoning your prejudices about the opposite sex, abandoning your hangups about sexuality and whatever else, you know, yeah. and just, and just fucking get in there and get on with it, man. You like, yeah. don't, don't be such a wimp, get in there and drop your bullshit and get to work. And that's, I feel like that's New York city to me. That's the highest, you know, like sort of aspirational, perhaps naive, but um, aspirational, inspirational, uh, standard for new york city and those towers represented that to me at least aesthetically so you know that that again is is something i've never really thought of especially being from a smaller town you know um if anybody's different in any regard doesn't even have to be something as major as race or sexuality or anything like that you know there's a chance that um you know, people won't, they don't have to, if they're not used to working with you, they may find a way around it or this and that. But what you're saying is kind of very intriguing to me of kind of answer some questions I've always had about the, the way people from big cities, the, just some, some of them have that calmness and they can just react to any scenario and they're cool with whatever. And, and, um, it kind of makes sense when you put it like that, because they have to, you have to be that way in a big city. Yeah, you know, you get you can't be picky. <laughs> uh, no, who you, no. Are, who you work with. Yeah, you can't be picky and fragile about all your preferences. You got to get in there with the mess and find your way in the mess. And yeah. by and by, as you do that, you will realize that the only way for it to work is to work with each other, cooperation. Yeah, you know, and and not get not getting hung up on the details of like where somebody came from or what they believe doesn't matter none of yeah. it matters you know yeah i'm i'm kind of a, a guy that likes you know a vacation to me is yellowstone national park and maybe a beach uh you know i went to washington dc a couple of years ago and that that kind of gets my stress level up and you know when i was in chicago as a teenager um i just remember it, it really just blowing my mind um you know and and um that big city mentality of just like how like everything about chicago and being every let me rephrase that everything about a big city scared me in ways that i didn't know that i was you know gonna be afraid of and and um you know for a while like after being in chicago i'm like i don't want to go to la new york i'm good i don't need to do it and and um, over the past couple of years i've really changed on that and i want to experience all those things but obviously now there's major limitations with with uh, the, you know, COVID and everything going on. But um, people from big cities have just always been fascinating to me because again, uh, just, it just felt like they had a totally different mentality that I, that I wanted to have really, you know? So what I want to talk about New York culture a little bit too. Um, and I wanted to go back into baseball because I'm showing my, uh, like I said, I'm not, I'm not a, a sports nut or anything, but 
What's what's uh, from a New Yorker's perspective, man? What's the difference between the New York Mets and the New York Yankees? <laughs> um, mostly winning and always losing. <laughs> <laughs> um, I have friends who are Mets fans, so I can't I can't go too far. And like they're you, they're a special breed, man. They're like, you know, they hang they hang in there for the abuse. Yeah. You know, like they're, they're tough. Um, Yankee fans, you know, the Bronx, I live in the Bronx. I, I've been a Yankee fan since my brother was discovered Don Mattingly in the eighties, you know? Um, so there've been, I, I'm not, I'm not, I can't, can't be phony and say that I'm a full on sports fanatic or anything. I just, baseball is very, um, just peaceful to me to watch. And, and um, I love that there's anything that can happen. I love that it mixes it up with the defense, having the ball at the, at the start of play and all yeah. of these weird American kind of like twists um, <laughs> of, of, of what rounders used to be, you know, like uh, it tur- turning a, a kid's game into something um, sort of miraculous is, is uh is f- totally fascinating to me. So I, I, I'm a Yankee fan, but the Mets, I would say, you know, as a New Yorker, you have this soft spot for them over there in Queens where they just lose all the time, you know? <laughs> and it's like, you got to feel for them. You know, they're like, they're like the Boston Red Sox of New York, you know, they're kind of like that. Like, um, yeah. but, uh, but when I was a kid, the Mets were like huge, like Daryl strawberry and, yeah, you know, um, <laughs> It was, they were such a big deal. They were, they had something about the marketing when we were kids was a little bit sharper than the Yankees for a while. They had the edge, you know, on the, on the marketing, I think, uh, Mets uniforms were kind of cooler in some kind of way, even though the pinstripes are awesome, but you know, it's like, it's just one of those things where it's like, um, you know, what side you're on, but you can look over the fence here and there and go, okay, they beat the Braves. That's fucking great. (laughs) (laughs) You know, like I, I get with, if, if anybody beats the Diamondbacks or the Braves, no matter what, if they're, if they're from the East coast, like, 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 a, like the Phillies or something like that. If I see that happen, I'm kind of like, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's funny, man. Yeah. I, yeah, I know that like, um, in Chicago, it's, it's like that you got, you know, Wrigley field and then it, the white Sox is, I think more South side. So when I would meet people from Chicago, I'd be like, "Oh, you a you know uh, uh, you know a Cubs fan?" They're like, "No, I'm from the South Side," and I used to not know what that means. I, I understand it now, but I didn't know what the division was in New York with the Yankees and the Mets. What side of town uh, made you a fan of what? And then is there is there like well, a real- if you're it's a bur- it's borough specific here. So like okay. the Bronx is the northernmost borough. That's where yeah. the Yankees play. You know, Yankee Stadium is in the Bronx. Yeah, but. Um, you know, Queens is where the Mets are from and they play in Queens. <laughs> and, and it's like, it's a real, it's a real thing like that. Those two, those two spots. Now there are in the other boroughs of people all from all over the city, you'll find it's kind of like Mets, Jets, Yankees, Giants. Like there's a, there's a, there's a bit of a tribe there, tribe split there. Um, yeah. But, uh, but you don't, um, you don't know what you're going to get in Staten Island or Manhattan or Long Island. You're just as likely to bump into a Yankee fan as you are a Mets fan. Okay. And if you bump into a Mets fan and you're a Yankees fan, you're like, oh boy, here we go. You know, <laughs> they, yeah. they just have so much to say about stuff, you know? 
That's so, so Manhattan and those other areas, um, it's kind of up for grabs. Yeah, very much so. That's funny. That's how it is here. Like there's a lot of Kansas city fans and then there's like a bunch of bears fans. That's what I am, you know, Vikings fans. And then just random, you know, a lot of Patriot fans of a kid. I'll, I'll notice that with like teenagers now when they were really little, the Patriots were always winning and stuff. So they've grown up to be these Patriot fans or whatever. So, um, no, that that's interesting. Uh, so yeah, the, the giants and the jets, I don't, do you follow uh, Gary Vaynerchuk at all? No. No, I know he, his big aspiration is to buy the Jets someday. And so he's kind of a gluten for punishment every year, uh, you know, yeah. on, so I don't follow American football in any way. Yeah, I, I, I don't. Sure. I, NFL is t- totally weird to me and alien. I don't enjoy watching it. it Why just, is that? Do you think? I'm not sure. Um, the talent is always impressive, you know, to yeah. see a guy who's like at the peak of his physical condition flying through the air seven feet off the ground, jumping over four guys with a ball in his hand, you know, he's going to clear 20 feet by the end of it. Pretty impressive. You know, like I, it's like, you can't, you can't, you can't knock that. Yeah. But just the game itself, the rules and the physics of the game, the, the, the oppositional setup doesn't really do much for me. Yeah. feels like, it feels like a lot of force and uh, not a lot of discipline. Did, uh, when you broke your arm as a kid, were you guys playing football? No, that was soccer. Oh, okay. Yeah. I didn't yeah. know if there was any, if there was any deep seated childhood wounds, you know, from playing football as a kid. No, 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 not at all. Um, yeah, that was, a, that they, they recruited me onto their team, uh, to do, to play goalie, uh, in a soccer game. And, yeah. uh, you know, those guys were so used to beating the shit out of me that they just didn't didn't even they didn't even flinch at the end. I had already saved the ball. The play was over. Yeah. It was in my hand and I was just about to get up on and pick it up. And a, a kid ran up and kicked it afterwards. Yeah, I didn't that's such a dude, that's such a horrible story. But that that um yeah, I didn't I didn't know if there was anything uh, as a kid if if the there was any kind of football types or anything that that um you know, no, not really. Uh, to be honest, I don't remember anybody doing anything football-wise when I was a kid. There was really? a lot of soccer in Little League, uh, but not a lot of football stuff. What about uh, the basketball teams in New York? Like Jay-Z, Jay-Z had that team that he started up. Um, how does that all shake up uh, in the city? Basketball is wonderful. Basketball is jazz, you know? Yeah. Like, that's a, that's a, a, a continuous, up-tempo improv of – skill and cooperation yeah and um the only time it ever gets boring is when there's a ball hog who doesn't bring it you know what i mean <laughs> like, yeah. that's you can't get bored otherwise with with basketball though in my opinion yeah. you can watch you can watch it and watch it and watch it and it's like all oh, right this is so cool like it feels like a tempo feels like a beat is happening you know yeah that's why uh, our one our one of our keyboard players michael bellar he kind of turned me on to how to how much it is jazz it's a it's a metaphor it's a physical um personification of jazz each team is improvising this this kind of subtle uh the subtle update on the form every time they go back and forth yeah which is interesting absolutely what do you think um what do you think people maybe don't understand or, or would be surprised to know about um, New York City, but also, you know, 9-11 in New York City. Um, and I'm talking, you know, 
what is something that people either don't understand about September 11th now, maybe even like kids my age. Cause like, I remember that day pretty clearly, but a lot of people my age don't. And the people younger than me definitely don't. Um, and so I think it kind of gets, it's people kind of minimize it. Um, so is there anything that, that, um, you know, you've got millennials in your band. Um, are there ever things about the twin towers that you tell them that they, that blows their mind or anything or. Um, for me, the, the kind of interesting stuff that I wind up talking about with any, anybody from any age group is the history of the actual physical location. Yeah. Um, the fact that that's the ground zero of the Dutch East India Company's colonial foothold in the New World, right? Yeah. The fact that it was that down there, the battery was originally this sort of like you know, the Dutch East India Company was just like really just a bunch of pirates who were sanctioned by the Dutch stock market, right? Yeah. <laughs> and they yeah. were out there pilfering and stealing and, and, and getting beaver skins and whatever else. But by and by, New York, from the very inception, and in particular on that particular piece of tiny little land, you know, that's the other thing that's pretty interesting about it. The reason people were able to walk from the catastrophe across to Brooklyn is because it's like four blocks. Yeah. Like the tip of Manhattan is tiny down there. And for this yeah. gigantic focal point of the world, this terrorist target uh, to try, you know, the, the, the fulcrum of world trade and all that stuff, to be located in this tiny little spot that was 400 years ago, the place where the Dutch set up this sort of like throwaway outpost that they had to they had to do it. They had to have this outpost because all the other imperial forces were, were spreading across the globe. So the Dutch planted their little flag at the very tip of Manhattan where that happened. It was New Amsterdam. And it's still tiny down there. It's still this tiny little place with cobblestone streets. Yeah. And from its inception, there were Huguenots, and Jews and people of color and lots of different languages. And it was what originally was like this kind of throwaway place gained strength and took over because of that thing I was talking about before, that they realized they had to work together. They had to find a way to work together to survive, you know, to, to make it work. And that little piece of real estate down there is still a place where if I'm down there, I feel like that's the thing that you have to be doing. That's the thing you have to be aware of. Leave your, your prejudices and your, mis your, your ideas about other people. Just leave them at the door. And when you go in there, you go in there with like, nothing's going to bother you. You're just going to get the work done. You know, you're yeah. not going to get hung up. No more hangups, you know, um, which is why people come here to start a new life. Um, so uh, in that regard, it was an attack on, on like the best of modernity. If eventually we all look past all of our heritage and our history and our, you know, all of our, the sins of our fathers and all the mistakes and the failures to, to, to live up to our creeds. And we start living up to them by embodying that, like that, that forget what your religion is, forget where you came from for all the, all that shit. That tiny little spot is still that piece of Dutch real estate that, that where they had to do that, where they had to do that. And every yeah. time they got into 
you know, a fight with the Indians, it was worse for the colony. It was it turned out to be a bad thing. Yeah. Um, so, you know, like it, it's, uh, I, I would, I'm not trying to downplay the genocide of, of native Americans in any sense. It was, it was sort of the grandest, worstest thing yeah, of, of, of that period. And slavery as well was a place was the New York was a place where there was a slave trade. Um, but I don't think people understand in terms of the history of the place, like what actually went on there in that moment of, of its inception. That is so similar still to the day that the towers actually fell. Well, you know, it's still a tiny little piece of land where lots of people from different places are coming to make ends meet. Yeah. And they're and they're leaving their bullshit behind. The <laughs> best of them, you know. Yeah. I uh that's really good. I've never I've never thought about it like that, but it actually puts some stuff in perspective. It, while you were talking, I grabbed this book. It's called uh I think it's just called the World Trade Center of Tribute. Um I had rented it out from my library, um, but it kind of put some stuff under perspective because I was reading about like the hair, like they have a whole thing about the heritage of it. And mm. as you were talking, it was kind of connecting the dots in my head because I was like, because I'm reading the, tr- the the stuff about like um, what is it, St. Paul's Chapel, and and um, kind of the history about that land. And I think that the, the way that you've explained it kind of makes all make a little bit more sense to me and crosses that bridge of how how it was when they founded it and constructed it and the similarities between then and, and now it's actually really interesting to, to think about and um i don't know if this book's online i imagine anybody could get it but um i'll put it in the show notes uh once again a world trade center a tribute by uh bill harris but it's got pictures of kind of everything you were talking about and and does a pretty good job of of uh you know, the, the history of it and, and, you know, what it meant to New York. So, um, that was, that was an interesting insight you had there. Yeah. The Ken, the Ken Burns documentary on New York is another one that goes into that pretty, pretty in depth. The Ken Burns documentary. Yeah. I'll have to see if I, I just watched uh, that documentary, uh, the man in the red bandana. Have you ever seen that? No, I have not. No. Are you familiar with that story of uh, Wells Crowther? No, I'm not. He, um, he was uh, a, a dude who worked. Um, I, I don't know exactly where he worked at, but basically they were all on fire. Like the, the where he was at was on fire and he found an exit and then um, he could have just left, but instead he, he kept coming back up over and over again to get more and more people down. And then he was taking firefighters up with him and he had a, a red bandana on. So these people are talking about being like, they're surrounded by flames. They're like, Oh, I'm about to die. And then all of a sudden this dude just pops through the fire extinguisher and a red bandana on. And he's like, come with me. And uh, he led like, um, I don't even know, nine, 17, something like either nine or and maybe it was 17 people out. I, I feel awful for not knowing exactly, but he That's saved fine. a bunch of people's lives. Uh, he's, it's, they say at least 10 people. So I guess maybe they don't know exactly, but um, uh, there, there's a great documentary kind of about how much of a giving person he was. And, um, you know, how ultimately, um, he, he died, uh, when the towers came down, he was leading a group of firefighters back up to show him like, Hey, I know where there's more people who need your help. Wow. Yeah. That's a good documentary, but I'm going to look up that Ken Burns, that Ken Burn one uh, right now. So yeah. what do you think about, you know, New York city post on 11, what's something maybe what's a, what's a big misconception about the city that, 
I don't know, maybe you come across as you meet people and maybe in the Midwest, like where I'm at or, or uh, what's something about New York that makes you proud and, and that um, maybe something that people don't realize about it? Uh, well, the national discourse is so overly politicized now. Um, and th- th- we're at a time in our history where the, the tension between inner cities, urban environments, and, and rural environments is kind of at an all-time high. Um, people who don't live in New York City and who've never lived here, never even visited, you know, I've seen them online saying things that they're just talking out their ass, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. like really just like, um, you know, stuff, stuff, you w- stuff you shouldn't say about something you don't understand and you don't know. Um, and, you know, I always, I always thought that this, this place, uh, can be a place where you really learn something new about the way people can live together, you know, about what's possible on that. Um, so I think the big revelation for somebody who's never been here in particular, somebody who might have some negative preconceived notions of cities in general, um, I dare you. I dare you to come here and, and figure it out with us. You know, yeah. you, I think you might even surprise yourself. Yeah. Um, you get, you know, I remember coming into the city in the eighties when I was a kid, it, it was a much more dangerous place, but I remember f- just feeling this energy of like possibility and everybody's minding their own business, but they're all cooperating at the same time. You know, can you imagine a place where everybody minds their own business, but simultaneously cooperates? Yeah, it's crazy. To think. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> sounds like heaven to me. <laughs> you know, it, it like, is. Yeah, it's, it's like an Omaha. Like I spent, I've been spending a lot more time in Omaha, and so, um, and th- that's been really uh, interesting. And um, Omaha is not big enough for that. So it's like you'll be around people, but a lot of the times, like um, they're not they're not minding their own business, right? So I like that thought of like because when I when I see the pictures and the videos of people just everybody's walking to work. Everybody's, you know, looking ahead, minding their own business. Um, I'm sure if somebody needed help, they would help. Um, but that's definitely, um, that's kind of always blown my mind, um, about New York city. That's when I think of New York, that's one of the things I think about are all the people like walking to work. Yeah. Um, I was listening to, I forget how it happened. I think it was an NPR article. Uh, and it was like, a sort of a day in the life kind of thing, but it was a day in the, uh, a day in the life of a tragedy, yeah. right. Or an almost tragedy. And what they were doing was they were, uh, following, uh, paramedics in New York city, just on a regular old day. Uh, a French tourist has, has a heart attack and they're, they're on the scene. NPR is on the scene on a ride along with the paramedic crew in the ambulance. So they, they're there when the call comes in, they're there when they arrive. And this is basically the city in its best state is a machine for solving problems, right? It's, it's very mechanized. There's a grid, there's tall buildings and concrete and metal are everywhere. And there's vehicles flying by and people are bike messengers and every, everybody is, is in the process of solving some problem, big yeah. problems, small problems, life-threatening problems, you know? Um, and I, I 
was fascinated by that little piece that I heard on NPR of like how they saved this guy's life and it turned out okay. He didn't know it, but he was walking around with the the Widowmaker. Heart failure was happening to him. Oh, yeah. And he was there with his uh, getting his daughter started off at school in in uh, late August. And, you know, like it was just they were just like doing something. They were solving their problem. And then they had a problem and somebody else had to come in and solve that problem. Yeah. And in its best at its best city is a place where at the drop of a hat. There's somebody there to solve the problem. We gotta gotta keep solving these problems. This is what happens when people come together. So do their problems come together? Their issues, yeah. you know. So their emergencies or whatnot. So, um, if I was to have any kind of a health issue, I'd want to be standing right in Times Square. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's the place where you want to be. You know, no kidding. Yeah, that's really interesting to think about too. I love it. Yeah, just a lot of people trying to help each other solve problems, basically, right? That's all it is. That's what the city is, you know. <laughs> that's all it has time hot time for. Yeah. Like, that's all you got time to do, you know. I love it. Well, um, I, I was going to wrap this up with, uh, you know, could you talk a little bit about the, the song uh, that you wrote, I, you know, in, in tribute? And, and could you play that, too? Sure, that- of course I can. So, um, yeah, I, uh, I have here the... Um, <laughs> Uh, the guitar that I recorded Teenage Dirtbag on, which is a uh, uh, 1890s Bay State Parlor guitar. Nice. Um, so it's over 100 years old now. Do you take you don't take that on tour with you, do you? Oh, no. <laughs> I feel really blessed right now to be on a, a, a chat with you and see that thing, man. That's that's incredible. Yeah, Thank it's a pretty it's it's pretty cool. Um, it's a little ornery when it comes to the tuning and. And whatnot. So I'm gonna tune it up before I before I play it for you. But yeah, th- thank you for pulling that out. That's amazing. I had a lady who let me play her uh, handmade eight thousand dollar guitar a couple months ago. Um, I was visiting with her, and she's like, "Do you want to play this?" And I'm thinking, "Well, yeah, but why are you letting me play this?" <laughs> you know? It's like if I had that, I wouldn't let anybody touch it. But <laughs> true. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to put this uh, microphone that's around my head here in a position that I've had luck with in the past. Cool. Um, if it doesn't sound good or something's wrong with it, just wave your hand at me or okay. like, give, me, give, me the, give me the hook. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> All right. Hang on. Okay, here we go. I trade all my sunshine for twin towers to hide behind and find you there. When I left on that Sunday To come home on a Tuesday Well, I never I never thought I'd have to stay Watch the world explode And 
Good job, man. Okay. That was great. That all was right? great. That was good. Good job. Thanks. As a, a song called Hometown from our third album, uh, it's um, just a sort of simple tribute to the um, local scenery of it all. You know? Yeah. Um, I can't speak for what the World Trade Center means to the world. I can only speak about what it meant to me as a kid and what it meant, meant to me as a young adult. Um, and to try and trace its, its history back in a, in a positive way um, for reconciliation, you know, yeah. of, of religions and classes and, and races and preferences and sexualities and identities and whatever else comes together here to, to live in disparate harmony. Um, so I put the, that old uh, New York folk song, The Sidewalks of New York, at the end of it, which is uh, old enough to be a public domain work now. But um, <laughs> yeah, that's good. Yeah, that, that's cool, man. You know, while, you, while you're playing it, I was thinking of, uh, of a couple things. First of all, the perspective of that song, I felt like is something I could relate to. You know, I feel like I would have I'll never know, but I feel like if I was going to have thoughts about it from being somebody around there. Um, you know, I, I understood that perspective that you were coming from. So I thought that that was really great. My, my other thought during it was, uh, how lucky and fortunate I am to do this right now. Right. To, to have, uh, you know, you, you play that song, um, and playing it on, the, on that guitar too. Uh, um, man, I, I just felt really blessed and thankful for everybody that listens and supports, you know, this podcast and allows me to do this. Um, and I think that people who listen to, um, you know, this episode specifically, um, are going to, if they come into it, you know, ready to ready and willing to learn something and, and, you know, listen to a, a, a historic event from, from somebody else, uh, from someone else's perspective, then you're going to get on the news. Right. Um, I think that people are going to learn a lot. And if somebody's never been in New York city, like myself, I think it's kind of an eye opening, uh, uh, talk that we just had, man. So, um, I can't thank you enough for, for doing this. Um, for being open to to do it and for having the talk and uh, you knew a lot about the twin towers i'm extremely impressed so i love it <laughs> yeah um yeah i was i i was and am fascinated with them uh on a sort of nerd building nerd level but um yeah but i'm fortunate to have you invite me onto your show and uh the fact that i get to play music for people and and, and that any of them care to listen is is just you know like pinch me you know it's crazy yeah. um and I, I really like what you're doing. I think, I think that you're, uh, you're, you're kind of a sponge for new information and, and interest. And, and I think that, you know, it's super cool. If you come to New York, you got to get in touch. I'll take you around. We'll go down to the Francis Tavern down there where they had the party at the end of the Revolutionary War. And, and uh, you know, we'll get some chicken wings and some Guinness and we'll, we'll hang Dude, out. I, I, will, I will literally... It's not going to be soon, but I will plan a New York. I'll I'll plan a trip to New York just for that, man. Yeah, you got to promise to get in touch because I'll, I'll you know I'll I'll take you around. I'll uh, you know here's what I want to do. Um, you know we're getting this podcast up and moving and and um, got a lot of episodes we're going to crank out. But um, once things are are really going along and you're off a tour, um, I want to make that happen, man. Because um, I like I told you, COVID changed my perspective. I was kind of the guy that's like. And I'm not even like, I've never even gone hunting, right? I'd love to, but I haven't, you know, being in Nebraska. I've, but I've been kind of more of like the Yellowstone, quiet, 
going to Colorado for the mountains type of a thing. But um, with COVID, it, it really changed my perspective of like, wow, there's so much out there. And, and even, if, even though it's man-made, it's still cool, you know? And so um, I've been really open and wanting to do something like that. So um, I want that to happen, man. I want to go to New York. and I think you'd be the perfect guide for that. So yeah, we'll man, make it happen. absolutely. Get in touch. And we'll, uh, you know, what we'll do is, I don't know if you ride a bike. Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. So we'll bike around the city cause that's the way to do it. Yeah, dude. I, uh, now, well, we talked before about, I, I did some BMX in high school, right? So, um, that'd be amazing. Take some BMX bikes out and go, cause that's, that's how, uh, I got to know my city. I, I felt like this probably, I think you probably relate. I've always felt like this really deep, um, relationship with my city kind of like what anthony kita sings about and uh with right. Red Hot chili peppers uh yeah. i think under the bridge is the song um where it just feels like this connection to the city and for me that connection really came as a teenager you know riding my bmx bike through every nook and cranny of the city right so that would be a blast man that's that's it that's the way to do it you don't even have to bring one i have a couple of cruisers 24 inch cruisers will will pack a lunch and we'll head down there, you know. Hell yeah, man. Well, yeah. We'll, uh, we'll make that happen, man. That's going to be a bucket list trip for me. So, Brendan, thank you again for being on. You're on the. You're about to hop back into the Summerland Tour of 2021. That's right. Yeah, second leg. Uh, yeah. Get your tickets at summerlandtour.net. And we're headed out with uh, Everclear and Living Color and Ubastank. And um, we're very much looking forward to getting back together with our tour family again. So, because we had such a great time the first run and... Yeah. Again, it's like a, a crazy blessing to be able to do this, you know. Again, seeing Living Color is crazy in and of itself. And then to think about them being with all of you guys, all of the bands that are going to be on there. Um, I'm going to see you, you know, we'll link up in Omaha and, and I can't wait for it. So nice. Okay. Well, make sure that we, we get in touch. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll send you my number on email cool. and you can text me and, and just let me know that you're coming so we can get you on the guest list and whatever else. So. Oh, yeah, man. All right. Well, thanks again for being on, Brendan. All right, brother. Thank you, everyone, for listening. I really hope that this gives uh, some people out there some new perspectives um, on September 11th. Um, if you've never been to New York or if you don't know the impact it had on the city, um, I hope that episodes like this are, are very helpful for you. Um, again, Brendan's going out on the Summerland Tour of 2021 with Everclear, Living Color. It's Weedus and uh, Hoobastank as well. So I'm going to link up with them uh, when they come into Omaha, and I can't wait for it. Uh, please follow Weedus on all social media, and please follow BookBrain on social media as well, facebook.com slash bookbrilliant, Instagram, we are at bookbrilliant, and uh, on Twitter, what did I just say there? On Instagram, we're at bookbrilliant, Twitter, we are at bebookbrilliant. Uh, so, so please check that out. Um, in the show notes, if you go to our website, bookbrilliant.com, uh, you can find show notes for all of the episodes. You can find transcripts for the episodes and you can find all of the books that have been referenced in the episodes. You can find that all on our website. Thank you everyone for checking it out.